Welcome to the ACO Show. I'm Josh Israel, along with my co-host, Brian Chiklinski, and we have a good show for you today to wrap up the end of season four. Brian, what'd you think of today's show? Yeah, I, I loved it. We're hitting a, a milestone in the ACO Show, four seasons. So this was a good one to end on. We we were joined by Kevin O'Leary and Ryan Russell, the founders of Health Tech Nerds, which is a great newsletter slash community slash group of, of analysts and insights on what's happening in the healthcare investment space and, and companies that are growing, especially in the value-based care space. I thought it was really great to hear them and to be able to talk to them a little bit, just because they do such a great job of pulling a lot of the headline numbers and financial statistics and actually drilling down into like models of care and what it actually means for patients and for, for doctors and, and, and clinicians. So it was really nice to have them on to talk a little bit about the landscape and what we've seen over the past decade. Although you do think all of our shows are great and all of our, our guests are special. So I, I do wonder what, what kind of Gorgon or sociopath would we have on for you not to think it was a great show? <laughs> Maybe we'll, we'll find out in season five. Season five, yeah. We'll book, we'll book a really tough guest and then I'll, I'll let you know it was a bad one. <laughs> all right. So thank you to our audience for joining us for yet another season. And we will see you in the fall with a whole new slate of shows for you. All right. We have the pleasure of being joined now by Kevin O'Leary and Ryan Russell, who are the co-founders of the Health Tech Nerds newsletter, something that I read in my inbox every Sunday night. Thank you both for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. So let's just get right to it. You all follow the value-based care market quite closely. I enjoy your insights on it. What do you see about the the state of the VBC market, You know, especially right now in what people are considering a, a risk-off environment? Yeah, you know, it's been an interesting space to observe the activity in the last several years, right? Obviously, Medicare Advantage has has been a huge tailwind for risk-bearing primary care models. And as we've seen that expand with MSSP and what's now ACA Reach, it's spurred a lot of activity. We are seeing a lot more conversation, particularly from the public payers, about how to expand that into the commercial markets and thinking about how to expand it into Medicaid as well, which we think will be interesting to watch how that evolves over time. Obviously, Medicare Advantage benefits from structural dynamics that make it, I think, easier for all parties to understand how to take risk, to quantify that risk, to measure how they're improving upon that, risk adjustment being a you know a hot topic within that area. And so I think we've, we, we still have more questions than answers, at least from what we hear from folks in the community and elsewhere about like, how does that actually translate into the commercial market? Like, obviously, employers are seemingly not thrilled with the state of how much they're paying and the quality of, of healthcare services that are being provided. And it invites a lot of questions about how you structurally change that and drive that forward. So we'll be interested to see how that evolves over time. I'd say the other thing that we see a lot more of is this sentiment that the first wave of value-based care is now kind of passing over us. We've seen all the activity in, in MA primary care, both with the de novo clinics and then also the convener models. And the question is, what's going to be that second wave, right? Lots more interest in specialty-focused models, subcap agreements, things like that, which certainly makes sense. And I'd imagine we'll see a lot more activity and interest in those markets and going deep in ESRD or cardiology, oncology, so on and so forth. But I'm starting to ramble. I'd say that's that's what we're seeing. That's where the interesting areas have been for us to follow as observers of the space. Ryan, anything you'd add? No, I think that last point on the the first wave really being focused in the primary care market. What we a lot of the conversations we have and what we see is 
the need to control more of the full patient dollar, which spans away from just primary care and into specialty. So where where you can start to combine the patient journey from primary care to, to specialty care makes it easier for payers and for others to to capture that full dollar and control that full dollar. And so I think I think that's one. And then the only other thing is that we we hear VBC is such is still just such a big buzzword. Everybody wants to just focus their models on that without recognizing that there's still a lot of the world that is in fee or a lot of the US world that is still in fee for service. And from a care delivery perspective, the ability to flex on both models rather than as a starting point to then evolve into value-based care. And where do you start with that versus is that just a mechanism of payment that you can leverage for infrastructure companies to help you figure out how to do that with? And so um, that's probably the only other thing I'd add. Yeah, I do love the summer theme here of the different waves of value-based care that are coming. So it's very timely. I also, I'm interested a little bit in kind of the the top players in the value-based care space that you guys are seeing now. And are there ones that stand out that seem particularly interesting that you've been watching, focusing on like specific companies and, and groups? Yeah, it's, we always like to tell people in the community when we get questions like this, it always depends on your definition of interesting, right? And so when we look at the value-based care landscape, I mean, a lot of the interesting ones to us are the ones doing it at scale and watching and learning from those organizations and, you know, being a learning community and sharing out information on the space, like, in the convener landscape, being able to follow Agilon and Privia in the public markets, what they're talking to analysts about, like there's a lot of really interesting learnings going on there. Like I was listening to Agilon's last earnings call about how um, they shared the insight that a lot of their new VBC contracts they're signing up with payers are the first contracts that payers are signing up from a VPC perspective, which I think highlights the, the current state of the market in some ways, right? Versus Privia, which just talked about walking back on one of its big BBC contracts because the payer wasn't sophisticated enough in the data that it was sharing with Privia. And so they were able to fall back on fee-for-service space. So for us, like as, as folks who are trying to learn from the experiences of the companies and share out those learnings, the most interesting companies are the ones um, sitting on the public markets talking about that. So Privia, Agilon, you've got... Clover, which has obviously been a topic of conversation in health tech nerds in the newsletter and what they've been doing and shifting from an insurance model to more of an MSO model and everything that that entails. Those are the interesting interesting companies to us. Obviously, we follow along companies like Allidade too, and it's fun to watch the journey. It's harder to get under the hood of private companies. And so it's always like for us, when folks ask us, what's the most interesting early stage startup in the convener space? We always say back to them, it's as an outside observer, it it's it's hard to know how to differentiate companies, right? And I think that's one of the 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 nuances of all this change in VBC, whether you're looking at conveners or de novo primary care clinics or you know the specialty plays, like you kind of gotta go talk to individuals in those companies and suss out for yourself. What's the care model? How does that company understand what their clinical intervention is and where they're really trying to drive change so that they can drive performance on VBC contracts? Because at the end of the day, a lot of this is, is contracting strategy, right? Can you effectively take risk? Can you manage that risk? And can you capture the low-hanging fruit that seems to drive so much success on VBC contracts today, right? Shift 
high cost imaging to lower cost site of service, have more availability to drive ED diversion, things like that. So again, kind of rambling answer, but that's that's how I how I process the world of what's personally interesting to me. Ryan, what's interesting to you? Yeah, I I think the theme that you get out of that, which resonates with both of us, is going to be within value-based care because it's because it's based on contracting and there's so much n- new complication to it. The interesting piece of having value-based care become continue to try to become more mainstream and like uh, effective rather than just something that's talked about are the companies that can help the independent providers or these new digital health startups or whoever who's trying to get into value-based care figure it out rather than some purely care delivery focus where like in Oak Street had kind of figured out the financing mechanism as well as some of the care delivery model. And that 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 knowledge is really important. And so it feels like whether it's payer or infrastructure that controls the contracts with that is what helps drive scale to that. There's also the there's always the question of what are the what are the companies that are wholly and solely focused purely on the patient to help drive that, which is Probably something that's missed, I think, in what should be more interesting as it relates to value-based care. And that's where cool companies like a fabric or live chair companies like that that have the opportunity to meet people and like impact people on everyday lives that don't don't make it to the doctor's office or don't make it to those things are interesting. How they make it and tie that back to capitated contracts or alternative payment models is largely going to be driven by the contracts that exist between infrastructure companies and the payers. So yeah, you you mentioned companies that are more or less focused on the patient. And I, I recall an interview once with the CEO of Costco on an investor call, and somebody was criticizing him for paying his employees too much, focused too much on creating a good work environment rather than driving value for shareholders. And his response was something like, okay, don't buy our stock, come to our stores and buy our product. I think you'll be very happy. So when you all are thinking about the VBC space as people thinking about investment, that's one thing. But what about as consumers, as patients? If you thought for yourself as, as patients or maybe for your elderly parents, when you look at the various players in the VBC space, do you have one where you think, yeah, I'd like mom and dad to be, be part of that system? So I, if you go from my shoes, that's an easier question to ask because I have access to a lot of good health. Like live in Minneapolis, have the ability to pay for health care. My grandma goes to Mayo, right? And she loves going to Mayo all the time. She's so convinced that she should go to Mayo. My mom is driving her there every two weeks, if not every week, just because that's where she's always gone. And that's like her system, high quality care with people she likes, and she can afford to do that. For me, I'm not like, I hope that I don't actually need to end up being a system at some point in time, but I have access to that with the, the care delivery models that I've always wanted to strive for those that understand me at my life stage of who I am as a person and a patient. And so from a system perspective, I'd like to be going to a system that understands uh, the mental health of me as a young dad who is starting a company who can also help take care of my kids because we're all going to the same doctor appointments. That's going to change significantly 20 years to 30 years from now. But that's for me is vastly different than somebody who wouldn't be able to answer what health system should I go to because there is no health system that they do go to or that they know they even can go to which are like some of my grandparents in Florida. They go to like 15 different health systems in Florida because they just get shuffled around. And like, I couldn't tell you what health system they should go to in Florida. I just know that the three they've gone to aren't very good. So 
that, that I think goes back to, should you go to a health system or should you be serviced more at home or some of these other new models that are coming along that cater more to what the people want than, than what we ideally think should exist within the system today. Cause the system, any system today hasn't been really built for patients. It's been built for profit and revenue. Yeah. I, Ryan and I talk about this question, both like for our parents, family members, also for ourselves though, as like guys in our thirties who are recognizing that we're getting older and need care delivery. But like when I think about a primary care doc for myself, I actually have no idea where I would start to answer this question or like go to my parents and all the Medicare Advantage primary care model specialty care. I have no idea how I would figure out like, should my mom go to Oak Street or Iora, now One Medical, now Amazon? I don't know. I think at the end of the day, a lot of it comes back to who the individual doc is that you're going to see inside those inside those organizations and systems. To me, I think that's what we we should aspire to move towards more is less about like the branching system and more about I connect with Ryan's point, like this individual provider who understands me has empathy for the life stage I'm at, knows how to interact with me and is, provides me with the individual support that that I need. And like, I, I think it's a it's a function of how we've had to build the system over decades. But like if a family member has a rare illness that you need to get treated. You naturally go to Mayo or Cleveland Clinic because that's where they've aggregated those specialist type docs, right? Or, you know, what, uh, another one of those hubs. But I, like that doesn't mean that uniformly every doc at Mayo is the best doc for that rare disease. And you might want to go somewhere else. And I, like to me, I think that's, the, that's where the question lies is how do we help patients understand what doc is best for them regardless of what system they're in? And it really tall task for patients today because nobody is incentivized to enable that, focus on that, what have you. Like, it's all around how do we build the system? My only small pushback there would be that I don't know that we'll ever be able to have patients be as informed as they need to be. Uh, I am a physician. And when I need care, I, I also struggle with trying to figure out what are the metrics that tell me who's the best doctor. So what would be comforting for me is at least knowing that the system is aligned to reward that doctor for better outcomes. So given that I'm not always going to know who's the best doctor, at least that doctor is going to be incentivized by my being healthy more than that doctor getting paid more for doing more procedures on me. That's so that's certainly one thing that I, I find so meaningful about the, the push to VPC. I do think that there is, there is a, we should strive to help people understand more of that so that they can make those decisions. So like the example of this with Mayo should have better outcomes. They're going to charge higher prices on things. My grandma has that brand halo effect of going there. She fell the other day and normally she would say, I'm going to go to Mayo. I'm going to wait. I'm going to go there. Mom, by some miracle was able to get her to go to what's good. Twin cities orthopedics was an ACO here in town for orthopedic surgery into the urgent care center just to get checked out. And she liked the doc and she liked that. And she doesn't have that knowledge to being able to say like, what's the choice that I'm making here that allows me to go to there versus what Mayo is doing, whether it's VBC or not, their ability to know what is the best version of care for me in this moment in time, whether it's my mom knowing that or whether it's my grandma knowing that I think is helpful in getting to what is that person's individual need that they have at that 
point in time to Kevin's point. So I, I agree with you that the value-based care can help with that. We should strive to push people to, to understand that, which is just going to take a lot of time. Yeah, I think this entire conversation is actually reminding me one of the reasons I really value the newsletter you guys put out, which is there is a real constant focus on what does this mean for the patient downstream that I feel like a lot of analyst reports, a lot of other ways that you can try to get the news about this landscape sometimes misses. It sometimes gets so caught up in the details of earnings calls and the details of you know which company is up and down and what new features are being rolled out and what that means from an investor standpoint that it can be really refreshing to come to your guys' newsletter every week and to be reminded of, of what does this actually mean in terms of patient care? Like, how will this change the care experience? I do want to ask one broad landscape question. What, if you looked back in time, what predictions do you think you had then that have either gone right or maybe gone wrong or been most surprising to you, kind of looking at the at the trends over time? So looking at VBC in particular, I think... I made this comment after Aura was rolled up into One Medical, into Amazon, and after Oak Street was purchased by CVS. If you had told me that was going to be the outcome of these Medicare Advantage de novo clinics back in 2014, 2015, when they were getting started, I'd, I'd, I'd be floored. Like I would not have expected that to be where these models will will go. And so that's been really surprising to me in a lot of ways. So I'd say that that, that is a clear thing that we need. Well, I should say I never would have predicted going back in time. I think beyond that, the the it, it feels like now a decade into this movement, folks are asking a lot more clear-eyed, maybe cynical questions about what the like what the biggest impact of value-based care can be within this world of healthcare that we live. And I, I think that that was perhaps a bit more predictable. Like you look back at the wave of HMOs in the 90s and what was going on then and how we kind of had this cyclical pattern. Like I think we've we found ourselves in another cyclical pattern, which shouldn't be all that surprising to all of us. And the question is, what is the next cycle going to look like? And there are going to be organizations that do really well in that cycle. And then the question, coming back to your preface comments to this question, Brian, is what is actually going to be the impact on patients from these cyclical things? Like, does anything actually change? Because you look at the last decade of healthcare in this country, and despite all of this VBC activity we've had, like, I don't, I don't know that the average American consumer has better healthcare experience than they did a decade ago. Like, every metric seems to be getting worse off. And I veered a little bit off of predictions, but I like I. I think that'll be interesting to think about for the next decade of value-based care and, and what happens in this space. Yeah, no, I I think that a prediction that seemed like it was widely held as the momentum of value-based care has been coming over the last, especially the last three to four years. And like my view of thinking that there is this big solve to to not to helping the system rather than fixing it, because you'd need to redesign the entire healthcare system to to fix it would be that value-based care adopts faster. And I think that it's been a lot slower than that. And I think that's because of not understanding the impediments that really exist. So I, I we were doing a, our chip article in Medicaid the other day, and like you'd think that value-based care payments should be helpful in that market too. And you talk to the one of the guys who was running Medicaid out in Philadelphia, and or and his his comment was. Well, we 
it's hard to put any sort of alternative payment models in place when a significant portion of the Medicaid population are kids, but nobody can come to us with a contract that looks like, what does this look like over a 10 to 20 year time horizon? And like, well, value-based care may sound good. It is stuck in Medicare because it's easy to show what getting the person on the right statin does a month later. For kids, for other people like that, it doesn't do that. And so finding the impediments that are things like that or populations that have more access to technology versus those who don't go to the dock at all, those are all, they're not, they're all individual and isolated issues that just take a lot more time than I think anybody really realized. And so I think it's going to continue to take time, but that, that would be where I would have thought it was going to go faster because it seems like such a good solution. There's a lot more to unpack in that, that I think we've all come to see. Now, I do know that the overall patient's experience of care in this country is probably still pretty atrocious, but I, I don't agree that all the numbers are getting worse. You know, I, I try to be a sort of a neutral host on this show, not, not an alligator, but our, our patients are getting hospitalized less often. Our patients are having a, a better experience of care at the end of life. So I, I do think some things are, are trending, right? It's just a, a giant battleship that, that has been built for profit overall rather than for patients. I certainly agree. But let's talk a little bit about, about your newsletter. It's, it's great. It's readable. Where do you guys get your information for, for that? Is it public information? Do you have sort of folks within companies you call? Kevin has a pretty epic RSS feed that he's cultivated over the last five to six years in getting the newsletter going. So there's that. It's evolved a little bit. And we have, because of the community that we've built, so to We've got the newsletter, which has the 22,000. Uh, it's the free thing that goes out every week. We have our community, which is the paid community of HTN, where people are sharing and, and coming to have conversations about the news or helping each other build. A lot of people are sharing other news there and sharing their perspectives on their news there that helps to also inform what goes in there. But a lot of it is is purely based off of reading the news with RSS feeds and different types of articles that we've cultivated over time. And Kevin has constantly streaming into them convert are people in the community sharing their insights. And then uh, honestly, a lot of it is our own experiences within different roles that we've had where Kevin comes from more care delivery and payer. I come from more payer and consumer world. And so we try to lean in on sharing our perspectives on that stuff. So that then it invites other people to share their perspectives. And that that's kind of what creates the community in and of itself. Ryan and I have a lot of debates during the week on topics. So Josh, like it, the pushback on comments, like totally appreciate all of that. And like, I don't disagree with anything you're articulating there. And to me, this is like, this is part of what we've tried to achieve with the newsletter is we're not going to get everything right. We're going to share our opinion as a starting point and hope that it spurs conversations for folks. So like for us, the, the best feedback we get is from organizations that are like, email gets sent out on Sunday and Monday, Monday morning, there's a handful of conversations that are spurred from that. And like, we don't expect people to always agree with that. And Ryan and I don't always agree with each other in it. And we'll have like long debates during the week of like, what do we think on these sorts of things, you know? And ultimately, I think that debate is good for us all, right? Like being able to have more conversation about what's working, what's not working and pulling that away from like the PR machine that exists a lot in healthcare, I think is important for all of us. Yeah, as a PR professional, I'm more than happy to encourage you guys to keep that up and, and keep pushing. For those of us, for the listeners joining us who might be interested in following more, how can they find you guys? How, how can they log on and join the conversation? Healthtechnerds.com. 
go to the website outside of outside of the newsletter, which even if you don't have access to the newsletter, you can log on there. But if you want to get involved in the community and join the networking, the learning, the stuff that all happens there, healthtechnerds.com is the place to go to check it all out. Perfect. Well, Ryan Russell, Kevin O'Leary, we are so thankful that you were able to join us for a short moment on the ACO show and keep the conversation going. The ACO show will be taking a summer break, but we'll be back in the fall with a full season of new shows, new topics, and new guests. This episode was produced by Leanne Horst, Alana Coogan, and Stuart Taylor. You can find more episodes of the ACO show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and join us next time.